Oh, hello, this is Annabelle Crabb. And this is Lee Sales. Welcome to our first podcast. Yes, um, I'm trying to think of something more illuminating to say than that, but that just about sums it up. (laughs) We were just talking about how it feels like we've just met up together in one of those French hotels that you hire for an hour or something. It seems very, there's something a bit seedy about (laughs) this arrangement. Anyway, um, our podcast is called Chat 10 Looks 3. Um, It's basically going to be just us talking about whatever we've read this week or other things we've been doing. And it's an excuse for Salesy to uh, indulge her ridiculously close to the surface obsession with musical theatre. I love how we started talking. We started talking about it would how much fun it would be to do a podcast, and then you know, like those dogs that really want to be taken for a walk, and the way they kind of corral you into doing it. You know, where they turn up with the lead in their mouth and then like nudge the door. Like you are like that with musical. Oh come on, come on! First of all, it's like why don't we call it? Chat 10 looks three in a play on words on the chorus line song. Next thing I know, like I look around and you've got your leotard on and you're kind of like, <laughs> we're going to do a musical version. Oh, my God, it's so exciting. For people who aren't familiar with the chorus line, it's very fortunate that I happen to be sitting at a piano right now. Gosh, what a coincidence. <laughs> so um, Annabelle and I have just worked out a little number that will give you a vague sense of um, what the podcast is about. So just put up with me popping the microphone on the piano and then bear with our um, rendition or our reworking of chat 10 looks three. one of the services I perform for you sales. <laughs> All right, here we go. <laughs> chat 10 looks three. Well, it sure beats unemployment. Chatting for our own enjoyment. At least they won't care about our bad hair. Chat 10 looks three. Give us a spin. Can't be that hard. Pretend it's Hansard in case your boss wanders in. Crab and sales. Books and arts and polity. Slightly crappy quality. This ain't mission creep. It's just super cheap. Crab and sales. Come and join us banging on. Everything from canopies to crime. Crab and sales. Won't change your life. We'll just waste time. Now that that <laughs> that missed note there at the end is why I've not been able to make a career out of musical theatre. It's the only reason. And the fact that I didn't notice is the reason why I don't have that career. <laughs> Have I ever told you about my a big break in the grade 10 Aspley High School musical? Stunningly, sincerely haven't. It's surprising because I do tell everyone. Um, no, when uh, I was in grade 10, we were doing Man of Steel and I was the understudy to Lois Lane and unfortunately, Lois Lane took ill on the second night. Ah, dodgy batch of cupcakes baked by a redhead. Yeah, it was sort of Chicago style. Officer, I swear, she fell on my knife nine times. Um, anyway, so I had to go on at very short notice and um, and do that, which was like for someone, if you like musical theatre, the sort of plot line that the star gets ill and they go, hey, you, chorus girl, you're starring tonight. It's like the best thing in your life that could possibly ever happen to you. And did it work out well? I mean, Uh, (laughs) oh god it was a disaster was it it was okay I mean I'd sat in on enough rehearsals that I knew I I could do all the songs all right um I'm sure I would have fluffed a lot of lines but anyway it was um was very fun and exciting at the time I recall um now anyway enough about my thwarted I remember when I was eight I think I was about eight uh and 
um, the second album I ever bought was Super Trooper. And I learned all the words to the ABBA songs because I was convinced that at some point ABBA would come to Australia and one of them would get horribly ill and that they would need a local uh, young person. Well, you do have the – who's the one with the dark curly hair? Yeah. You have the hair. Uh, Frida, isn't it? Frida? No. Oh, God. I can't. Yeah, I think Frida. Agnetha is the blonde, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. I was resigned to being the brunette one, absolutely. Now, for anyone who's listening that's going, oh, God, is this a show tunes thing? No, it's not a show tunes thing. Um, it was just – actually, I'm just going to have one more line about a, a chorus line, which is, um, I bet you're all listening to my podcast now. <laughs> oh, my God, you're unstoppable. So it's basically just us talking about things we've read, seen, listened to, that we've found interesting, that we would like to evangelise a broader audience with. Or not. Um, things that were rubbish. <laughs> Absolutely, exactly. Um, so to warn you off. Um, so, yes, so moving on from musical theatre, you had dinner with Yotam Watalengi this week. I did. Um, you know when you admire someone for a really long time and then you kind of dread meeting them because you think, what if you're not as delightful as I've basically kind of built you up to 100% of being in the times that I've thought about having dinner with you. And, I mean, Yotta Motolenghi is constantly in my top one of cookbook writers, basically. He's um, uh, an Israeli-born um, uh, chef and restaurateur. I mean, he's got a series on SBS, which is great. Um, and I – well, there's no easy way to really uh, skirt around this. I – got to meet him because I whined and whined and whined at the publicist who was taking him around Australia, you know, and he was sort of on one of these, I'm here for a week and every damn person wants to come and talk to me about pomegranates. So he wasn't really super um, kind of accessible, but um, I did whine my way into this this dinner um, on Monday and um, it was, he was great. And I had this fantastic moment where um, somebody in the conversation that we were, were we're in said um what's your most shameful ingredient that you like eating or food and for me it's kind of really like an instant answer i really love tin smoked oysters you know those even just black and gold brand ones that's not too shameful like shameful is like a bucket of kentucky fried chicken (laughs) yeah maybe it's not shameful either that's delicious or a really weird um we did the kitchen cabinet um recently with uh, mary joe fisher and um, the former senator from South Australia who um, bounced out of the Senate after shoplifting lychees from, you know, Fruville Foodland or something in Adelaide. Anyway, um, she, to the lunch that we had with Andrew Robb, and the two of them kind of talked about, you know, very movingly, I think, about their experience with mental illness in politics. Um, she brought something called um, an ambrosia salad, which was she says, you know, invented or handed down to her by her auntie, who was Joe Valentine, the first Greens senator um, in uh, in the Senate. I don't know how she got pre-selection for the coalition with a Greens senator auntie, but there you go. Um, and this is this um, salad that has oranges, tin pineapple, cottage cheese and marshmallows. That is shameful. And I love that um, apparently that, that recipe is considered so special that it's like handed down. <laughs> It's handed down like a sort of, you know, a, a piece of nuclear waste, you know, from Nana. Um, but she, I've, I've had um, a lot of contact from Mary Jo since the episode went to air. And basically she is being pursued around South Australia on account of the recipe. Like no one really wants to talk about her kind of depression issues. They're like, what about that recipe? 
recipe. So she said she went and did this Beyond Blue kind of function just yesterday, actually, um, in like Port Lincoln or somewhere in South Australia. <laughs> she said there's this like big, you know, crowd there, presumably people struggling with some sort of, you know, depressive illness or whatever. And the first question was, okay, so with the marshmallows, do they have to be the Pascal brand or would, would you know, home brand do? Like that was what people wanted to know. And then the whole of Adelaide Radio the next morning after the show went to air was just this kind of talk back support group about bad salads that people had in their youth. It wasn't about, you know, supporting each other through mental illness. It was about supporting each other through jellied carrot salads and the like. The most horrific things came crawling out of I reckon it's also a good um, thing for politicians who've maybe been scared to do kitchen cabinet because they've thought, oh, I don't know how to do a ratatouille or anything good. You don't have to do anything good. <laughs> In fact, it's some of the bad things that people remember more. Like when I went to um, Joe Hockey's house and, you know, I'd been trying to get into that house, his sort of frat share house that politicians live in in varying degrees of squalor um, for some time. And he is just not a cook, even though his dad, who's Armenian, um, is this fantastic cook who's, you know, always making sort of kibbe at the weekends and stuff, just has apparently handed down none of this expertise to his youngest boy who just has no idea. Like at one point I handed him an iceberg lettuce and I could actually see his eyes flash for help. But um, he served an entree of those dippity bix things, you know, like the little biscuits. Like j- a jats. Well, like those ones that you get in school lunches, like that are a foil. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a foil pack. Like a snack pack. And a sort of horrible cream cheese dip yeah. thing. Yeah. Anyway, oh, we're a okay. long way from the smoke. I know. So how did we get down the path? Anyway, um, so what did Yotam say when you said smoked oysters? Well, I, it was a really, it was a high... Um, uh, stakes call because I thought, well, you know, um, it is kind of in some ways an embarrassing thing. And then it was just like one of those moments that you, you're having dreams really, but they don't ever really happen, particularly not with, you know, your hero. Because, you know, when you meet someone that you've admired for so long, what normally happens is you step on their foot and then they look at you really coldly and then you kind of just say something like, and then they kind of, you're both embarrassed and then they move on and you go home and you know whip yourself with a kind of a (laughs) you know but he just kind of looked at me I I think a crackle of electricity did sort of I want to talk to Yotam to get his take he's like this crazy woman accustomed to like smoked oysters (laughs) and he says no you too and then for this incredibly pleasurable three to four minutes we're just like firing back and forth things that we like to do with smoked oysters you know and he his dad apparently invented some recipe where he just you fork mash the potatoes you know fork mash not too fine but you know and then you tip an entire tin of smoked oysters oil and all in there and then mush it up a bit and then put um coriander on it this thing about um you know oh we had a very pleasurable half hour talking about everything we'd like to do with smoked oysters it's only adding to the seedy like we've just got a hotel room vibe for this yeah snap lock off the uh sealed pack of smoked oysters (laughs) pop out some uh unnamed brand crackers um I had an embarrassing one meeting Helen Garner um, where I am a massive, massive, massive Helen Garner fan. I think she's, you know, the best Australian writer, living Australian writer. Um, And I, when I was Washington correspondent, Michael Gawenda, the former editor of The Age, came over for the last year I was there for Fairfax and he had edited Helen Garner for the newspaper. And so I was forever just bombarding him with questions about Helen Garner and, oh, what does Helen think about this and what about that and when's Helen's next book coming out? Anyway, when we got back to Australia a couple of years later, he had launch for the book that he had written and who's there? Helen Garner. 
God. And there was a dinner afterwards for, I guess, maybe 20 people and I wasn't sitting, Helen was at it and I wasn't sitting anywhere near her, but over the course of the table, mooning over, looking at, you know. (laughs) Exactly. You know, when like you've got a crush on someone and they keep busting you looking at them, it was like that sort of vibe. Um, Anyway, I, over the course of the evening, managed to sort of sidle my way around. So finally I was near Helen and then. The dread just mounts so badly, (laughs) right? What happened next? So I was talking, I think, like a normal person, not like a fan. I was just making normal conversation. And then Michael comes bounding over and goes, oh, thank God, Helen, that Lee's gotten to meet you. She's your biggest fan. She just goes on and on. She's read every word you've ever written. Oh, I just, I could have killed him. You could see Helen just like, oh, it's a stalker. (laughs) And you were busy with the whole like, and uh, what Helen, was it? What do you do? I've Have you read horrible, her? I've got a horrible Helen Garner moment too where um, when I was in London, um, James Button, who was the correspondent there, was really good friend. Yeah, they're really great mates. And so um, and she was staying with him and, and James invited me over knowing of my Helen Garner obsession and I went and um, was just kind of speechless with excitement and took the worst dessert I've ever prepared. It was just a real dud. I said, I'll bring dessert. And it was just, it was so bad. And I just feel like at one point, at some point in the future, I will appear in one of those kind of incredibly kind of um, microscopic detail kind of. Oh, yeah, because that's what she does. Where, you know, where there's, you know, um, the keen young reporter who arrived with an inexplicable dessert. (laughs) She must watch Kitchen Cabinet and just go, no, they clearly fake this because I've eaten that woman's food and it ain't TV worthy. trying to make a kind of a, it was like a, a variation on a cheesecake it was just so it was like a liquid it was like a it was like a really bad milkshake with crumbs in it, it just <laughs> with jelly oh my god it's just the worst but um, um have you read her new book yeah i have I this mean, house of grief yeah so we both were waiting for that book to come out um for a long time right because she's been writing it Oh, I was, this was one of the things I was quizzing Michael about in Washington in 2005. She's been working on it for a very long time. So this is the story about Robert Farquharson who um, killed his three children, by who drove into a dam um, and, I mean, this is about nine years ago now, wasn't it, I think? And um, his story is that he had a coughing fit and kind of passed out and he was prosecuted for their murder and Ghana... Um, in her kind of the way that she's been doing in the latter part of her career, has sort of gone and sat through the the case and um, and has written a book about it based almost just entirely on her observations in the courtroom. Because in her other kind of courtroom drama type things before, like the uh, Joe um, the Joe Jingwei's Consolation, um, it's kind of a combination between what's happened in court and her interviews with um, family members and so on. But this one. Um, is just sit around the courtroom. But, it, I mean, it's the most confronting possible material, right? Oh, just horrendous. Look, I have to admit, even though I had been so looking forward to it, I read about uh, 30 pages and then I had to give it away. I, co- I could not read it. Um, I thought I thought it was unreadable, not because it's badly written. In fact, the exact converse, because she's such a good writer that she, and she's a very economic writer, so she distills everything so intensely that I felt like it made the horror of the crime even more horrific because of the her penetrating way of writing about it. And so she opens the book with a chapter talking about two people who happened on the scene, two men, um, and Farquharson basically comes out and says, I've driven into the dam and my children are in there and, you know, it's an accident and I need you to drive me to my wife's house, which they do. Um, and she 
recreates this evening very effectively. And I was so rattled by it that I thought I can't even begin to imagine how how badly it's going to affect me when she starts delving into here's what the children were like and and their lives and their little soccer games or whatever they were doing um, because it it was just so confronting and I and I felt like I'd actually there's some things in life that I actually don't want to know that much more about or have that much more insight into and so I felt that I just couldn't carry on reading it so I put it aside. She's got this amazing capacity as a writer, hasn't she? To like, I mean, I've sort of I ploughed into it and I, you know, I knew that you'd had some trouble reading it but I sort of had a go and I got through it and I, you know, it, it was upsetting. Were you forcing yourself or were you just? No, not at all. After the first little bit and I found that hump a bit hard to get over too but the thing about Tana is that she's so gutsy. Like I love the way it's almost like having your food pre-digested by somebody or like those birds that, you know, throw up into their kids' mouths. Oh, like, that's a really poor analogy. <laughs> I'm just. Oh, I can't get out of it. No, okay. I'm just going to jump out of it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you feel like she's kind of done the pre-suffering for you. Like That is something that I just find so compelling about the way that she writes. And even her fiction is a bit like that too, but her non-fiction is especially like that. You can actually feel the difficulty that she's had with it at every point. And it's not a heavy thing. It's, it's kind of – it adds weight, but um, in a – in a convincing way to what she writes, I think. And so I feel like, uh, this may be absurd, but I feel that she has kind of weathered so much of this experience that I'm kind of skating over the top of it more and picking up the intelligence and the insights without having to be there through all of these grinding days. And there's just, you know, this trial went for so long and she she kind of evokes the um, the the ennui of the courtroom as well so brilliantly yeah I felt because of what you describe I felt really sort of a bit emotionally uh torn by putting the book down because I felt like well if she's been able to actually live this and sit in the courtroom for that entire period of time um and then immerse herself in it to the degree you have to to write it um I should be able to bloody well read it and so I felt angry at myself but I must admit I also felt a bit angry at Helen Garner thinking, how dare you put me in this position expecting me to read this. And as Michael Gawenda accidentally let you know. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So I felt really quite unsettled by the experience of trying to read it. And then, of course, because I love her so much, I, you know, I felt like, oh, I don't want to, you know, now I have, of course, said it publicly in this podcast, I didn't want to say that I didn't, couldn't read it. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, um, one of the things... um, you know, in legal judgment, there's the sort of the the um, the finding and the judgment and the legally directly relevant parts, and then there's this stuff called obiter dicta, which is the judge's sort of thoughts on other things. I always find with Helen Garner's books that sometimes the obiter dicta is really interesting too. And um, there's this whole passage that she writes, which is about what happens when um, the prosecutor who's completely obsessed with this issue of um, where the spray paint marks went, um, you know, on the grass and whether the people, you know, at first at the crime scene had put the spray paint at the right place. And there's just like days and days of material about these spray paint marks. And she writes so it's actually quite humorous, even though it's in this kind of uniformly bleak kind of um, story um, about 
the experience of hearing somebody talk at length and you think, well, I'm quite a clever person, but I'm still I'm not understanding what he's saying. And, you know, the dawning possibility that maybe they're the idiot and not you. I, mean, I found it so refreshing because I always feel like that. Sometimes, I feel, you know, politicians in question time or, you know, speeches, I think I'm not really following this. And I always think, well, it must be me that's the idiot. But then sometimes it's great to be reminded that sometimes maybe it's not you. Like maybe it's just the way that people communicate. Oh, I think courtroom communication is horrendous. When I've covered many court cases, I've thought um, you can see the jury getting bored by the manner in which people speak. I think why why don't they just speak, say, in the summings up that will take off in, you know, seven hours. Like just condense it down to two, stop adding all the unnecessary words and speak in a conversation conversational regular manner. I actually don't understand. I mean, maybe there's some particular legal boxes they need to tick, which means they need to do it in that manner. But I often have found it really dull. Well, I guess half the time, I mean, um, counsel in those cases, particularly those really difficult ones, half the time they're kind of insuring themselves against um, appeals, aren't they? Like, you know, they, they're trying to make exactly um, everything as watertight as they can against, you know, a subsequent reversal of a decision that goes their way. So I guess there's an incentive to kind of be completely <laughs> impenetrable there. But, you know, anyway, she sat through it, which is, um, you know, uh, a great credit to her. So would you recommend that book for people to read? Yeah, I would actually. I mean, the thing that changed my mind about it, because I felt like you, very kind of... Um, you know, torn between my LOG, love of Ghana, and my, you know, dread of, you know, horrible material. And I think, seriously, I think having kids does change the way that you read. Like one of my favourite books in the world, bar none, is one of Ian McEwan's novels. They're not one of the most famous one, but ones. It's called The Child in Time. It's an incredibly beautiful, perfectly structured book. Um, and because the central event in the book is the abduction of a um, little girl, um, it's I can't read it at the moment, you know, and I used to read it at least a couple of times a year um, and I find, you know, I can't go back to it. And I think, you know, that that is part of what was kind of stopping me reading the Ghana book. But then I, I watched um, Jen Burns' interview with Helen Garner, um, which you can see on, I think it's still on iView, but it, it, it's probably on, um, it, it'll be online somewhere. Um, and it was so interesting. And she talks about people's responses to the fact that she was writing this book. And, and she had friends telling her, you know, don't, you know, that's a book that shouldn't be written. I'd be um, curious to know how it's selling. You'd, you'd think just because of her following that it would still be doing yeah. very well, I would have thought. Yeah. But you wonder what the word of mouth would be doing um, with it. The, just um, on Ian McEwan, I finished his new book the other week, The Children Act, I think it's called. Um, God, he structures stuff well. Yeah. The structure's it's fantastic. So basically this book is about um, a judge in the children's court in London um, and her husband comes home. She thinks they've had a pretty nice marriage and he announces that he wants to have a um, – uh, a loafing relationship, yeah. Um, here we go again with that seedy French theme. Um, Just give us a few chords. Yeah. <laughs> The And so that's sort of one subplot and then parallel to that she's hearing a case with a, a boy who's a Jehovah's Witness and he's, his family and he are refusing a blood transfusion. She's trying to nut through that and so the two stories run alongside each other. It was just a really satisfying read, one of those novels you read and think you really know what you're doing. It's it's His technical control is just amazing. Like in The Child in Time there's this scene that goes for about three or four pages and it is about the narrator 
nearly having a car accident with a semi-trailer. Like the semi-trailer kind of spins out and it's about second by second the thought processes that he goes through. And it's just it's just this incredible marvel. It's this show-off piece of writing basically because it's like it's like watching somebody like looking at their ice skating rink or something and like everyone's just sort of falling over on their asses and then all of a sudden some kid comes in and goes, this is triple axel and flip. It's kind of like, oh, right, off you go then. Well done. Yes, yes. Um, Can I tell you about something that I hate, um, which is when – prominent people, particularly politicians, I find, are asked to give a list of their all-time favourite books. It's not ever books like um, A Child in Time or things that are a little bit more obscure. I swear to God, I reckon 50% of people name To Kill a Mockingbird uh, and then the next 30% probably say Ulysses by James Joyce and then you might get 5% of people that actually name something that you think, okay, well, you have done some reading outside of your high school English class. Yeah, it's like there's the right books and the wrong books. There's the sort of you can't go wrong with and To Kill a Mockingbird is totally one of those. Because I'm like, not saying it's not a great book but but it's kind of obvious, right? And it's also I guess sometimes they name books that, you know, other people might have read at school and thought, oh, yes, that's very good. But, yeah. I want somebody to say, you know what, my favourite book is Lolita. It may be about a pedophile but, by God, it's a really funny, funny, cracking read. Do you know, I always actually miss that as my favourite book. I'm not sure what that – it's just the most incredible piece of writing. And it's one of mine too. And when you think about the fact that Nabokov was writing in his second language, the kind of – the outrageous things he does with language, like you know how long it takes you to be speaking a language before you, you really have the – um, confidence to mess about with it. Like he just got there so quickly. It's like those people who play guitar and like they have to be really good at guitar before they can start playing it upside down and kind of, you know, swinging around their head and doing stuff. Like and it's stuff like like wit, like to do wit in another language. And it's so witty, that book. Um, he's incredible. It's a great book. Well, I, I've never seen a politician list that as their favourite book. But I was, gonna, I was just thinking also for our listeners, like, you know, the insights we're offering here, Crab Nabokov, brilliant. <laughs> I know. Oh, excellent. Check that off. Um, <laughs> celebratory chord please um I just I, I know you know I, lovely um I just remember this hilarious story about Ian McEwan which was when he was out here for Sydney Writers Festival a few years back it was actually it must have been pre-2007 because um the I don't know maybe it was yeah maybe it was 2008 anyway um Sharman Stone was the um shadow federal minister um acting sorry the shadow minister for the arts and um uh she was at the um at the sydney writers festival launch and i think the organizers who were sort of you know chivying McEwen around you know in his lantern jawed interesting way um were sort of looking for important people for him to meet <laughs> like, this is just the most terrifying story so they've kind of found charmin stone and kind of bustled her up and, you know, introduced her, you know, um, shadow minister, this is Ian McEwan, and <laughs> she said, um, oh, terrific, lovely to meet you. And what are you doing? Oh, God. And, um, he said, you know, I I'm a writer. <laughs> oh, fantastic. That's so terrific. And, 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 and what do you write? You know, anything that I would have heard of? You know, oh, my goodness. The organisers are always going, go on, go on, you know. I have a story. I better not name the person who told me this, but someone that we both know who met Nicole Kidman uh, in the Tokyo embassy in Australia, in, uh, sorry, the Australian embassy in Tokyo in the early 90s. I think she was already married to Tom Cruise, so pretty famous, right. but this person's not at all across pop culture. And he said to her, oh, so what do you do? And she said, I'm an actress. And he said, oh, so I suppose that means you're off starving in some garret somewhere. <laughs> And she, to her great credit, said something like that. 
There's a fabulous story from the Adelaide Grand Prix um, about Wolf Blass, the winemaker, um, uh, meeting George Harrison. And George Harrison performed at one of the, you know, first um, Grands Prix in Adelaide. And um, he apparently, similar thing, he, um, you know, found himself next to George Harrison and said, all right, what do you do? And oh, my God. Harrison says, I used to be in a band. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, now we're trying to keep this podcast to half an hour. So have we, have we got any more minutes? Um, we've got about, well, we don't have to be strictly to time because yeah, it's well, goddamn, it's our podcast. Make another cup of tea. Um, I, one of the things that really bugs me about politics these days is that it's, I think hardly any of them do read very much outside their kind of portfolio. And like one of the things, um, we've just sort of come through this festival of golf, obviously. One of the most powerful things I think about him as a political leader, um, and as a sort of statesman is the extent to which he was obviously influenced by his, the life of the mind. And I think it's so, I think, unfair on contemporary politicians that they just, don't have the opportunity for introspection, whether that's on sort of, you know, long um, plane or train journeys, you know, without Wi-Fi kind of providing this sort of constant work demands on them. I, I just think it's, I don't think they read as much as they used to. Well, and I'm, I mean, I know I go through in my life patches where I find it very hard to read novels because of the degree of concentration that it takes to get into the novel initially. And so because our attention spans are so fractured now, I find that hard. But I think it's also because I've switched to reading on my iPad. And so the temptation when you finish a chapter to think, oh, I'll just have a quick look at my email to see if, you know, Crab's replied to that thing or whatever, um, means that you're constantly interrupting. So you don't immerse yourself as fully as you need to. And for politicians, I can only imagine their time is busted into units of five-minute blocks, so it'd be very I hard. I find they're too busy writing books anyway. Like, is this yeah, exactly. huge rash of them that's just come out. Have you read many of those? I've read the Gillard one. No. I mean, I've read some of them, but I must say I feel like I get a good uh, chunk of them out of the extracts, to be honest. So I, I must admit I haven't read the Gillard one. Russell, as uh, publishers, quickly and dramatically reworked that extract strategy. <laughs> What did you think of the Gillard one? Um, well, one of the things that I really, that really struck me about it, I mean, like I, I read it with some enthusiasm because I think that, you know, there is this central mystery about her period in government, which is, you know, for me, I never quite understood what happened, you know, the, the person who was the deputy prime minister and who was the shadow minister before that, that I'd known and really liked, you know, enjoyed the company of, um, had sort of really kind of disappeared a little bit behind this sort of much kind of um, more brittle and aloof persona of Julia Gillard, Prime Minister, Prime Minister, and I was interested to see if she had any insight into that. And, in fact, she just deals with it on one page where she says, you know, I know that there were a lot of people wondering what happened to that, she says, funny, feisty woman who was the Deputy Prime Minister. She doesn't really offer an explanation and she says that she's not really kind of very big on kind of self-analysis and she just sort of gets on with it and I believe that I think that's right and to me that admission is the um, admission of someone who is not going to write an interesting autobiography because you have to be very self-aware and you also have to be willing to just embrace scandalous candor I think to write a really good autobiography yeah the Bob Carr approach or you know the some of my favourite, some of my favourite books of all, all time are the political diaries of Alan Clark, who was this slightly mad kind of um, junior um, Thatcher era minister. I mean, they are because he blows himself up on every page. They're completely addictive reading. That um, point about not 
touching on something that you wanted to know about, which is why she changed. Reminds me of um, I went and interviewed David Walsh, the guy who set up Mona in Tasmania, the modern art um, museum, contemporary art museum down there. Um, and he's written a book called A Bone of Fact, which was a really terrific read. Um, but the, one of the most interesting things, or I think the most interesting thing about David Walsh is that he's made this absolutely epic fortune from gambling. Uh, and so he's got this book contract and you read the first 100 pages of the book, which are riveting, but nothing whatsoever about his gambling, how he's made his money. And then you get to this chapter at about page 103, which is entitled Contractual Obligation Number 1, in which, comma, after my publisher expresses displeasure at this first 100 pages, comma, I narrate the history of my gambling. <laughs> That's so great. It must happen all the time, mustn't it? When oh, I'm sure. Of, you know, here's my memoir. And then there's this kind of, you know, what? No mention of your incredible affair with Jimmy Stewart, you know, or whatever. Um, now, just to wrap up in a couple of minutes, anything else you're reading or watching that you'd recommend people to look out for? Well, look, it's the honest thing, but I just finished reading um, Blanche Dalpage's second novel in her historical fiction series about Henry Plantagenet. Now, Historical fiction is just so not something I'm normally into, but I must say I read both of those books. Um, the first one is called The Young Lion and the second one is called The Lion Rampant. I really enjoyed it. And it's like there's all this sort of mystical stuff in there as well. You know, I did a book conversation with with Blanche um, recently where she disclosed that Henry Plantagenet and Thomas Beckett actually speak to her, which is how she's kind of divined a lot of this action. She does unbelievable stuff to Thomas Beckett, by the way, including making him this raving queen who's kind of constantly amorously stalking Henry Plantagenet. Anyway, there's lots of falconry and like she is a great writer, of course. So, you know, kind of you whip through it. And then there's Eleanor of Aquitaine as well, who's this sort of spectacularly great kind of um, character. Um, I have been listening to the people who make the series This American Life, the podcast, um, radio, radio show in the United States, have got a new thing called Serial, which is a murder case that they're playing an episode of every week. I'm not sure how many they'll do. There's been six so far. It's about a girl, a high school girl, who was whose body was found in a park in Baltimore and her high school boyfriend was charged. And the story's about, well, did he actually really do it? And it's really a fantastic radio documentary, a little bit at a time, which I'm loving. I just finished also... Baltimore. They just can't leave it alone, can they? <laughs> exactly. Oh, Baltimore. Well, exactly. The truth about Baltimore is that it's really boring and nobody dies there. <laughs> the, the, the park where the body's found, they describe as the sort of park that um, you go and bury a body and you accidentally dig up another body. <laughs> Um, anyway, and I also finished Lena Dunham's autobiography, Not That Kind of Girl, on the autobiography theme, which left me a little bit cold, actually. I mean, it's... I heard that from a couple of people, actually, that it was a bit thin. Yeah, and it's it's a certain sort of, I guess, privileged New York arty environment where everyone goes to therapy and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's a bit like girls in the... I enjoyed the first season of Girls and then I found it a little narcissistic and the book is also quite narcissistic. But then she is a really lovely writer. So I did finish it, but I wouldn't be going around going, oh, my God, you've got to read Lenny Dunham's book. Those four words. I did finish it. Yeah. <laughs> Everything. I'm going to go listen to Serial. I'm going to give Lena a miss, I reckon. <laughs> um, well, we might leave it here for this week and then we'll see how it goes and if we've got time, we'll do it again next week. <laughs> Thanks for listening to us. Thank you. Whoops. Oh, Annabelle Crab just fell over. <laughs> it's my physical grace that you admire, isn't it? <laughs>